And now, live from beautiful Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Yes, it's me! It's me, it must be Wednesday, because we're here. Clap for the Donald Trump is finally not president miracle. How would we know that you were happy that Donald Trump was no longer president if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Folks, uh, Donald Trump is no longer president. Uh, Unfortunately, the news kind of goes downhill from there. But I'm glad that you're here. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Share this right now. The last thing that I want is for your closest friends and loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long libertarian broadcast on a Wednesday evening. Be sure to give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. We are on Facebook. We are on YouTube, Instagram, Anchor, Twitter, Periscope, iTunes, Google Play, Float, Twitch. We're on all the uh, podcasting platforms. We're everywhere. Anywhere on the internet, Muddied Waters Media, check us out, like us, follow us, five-star us. If it's on YouTube, hit the bell. If you don't hit the bell, then your phone won't blow up with notifications every time we go live. And I would hate for you to miss that. So be sure to hit the bell and share this right now. I already said that. This episode is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing waffle-related caucus in not just the Libertarian Party, but in any party, in any country, on any planet. Be sure to join us at the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus and be sure to buy our buttons. You can't be an actual member of the caucus unless you buy the buttons at the Muddy Waters store, muddywatersmedia.com. Click on the store and you will see the buttons. This episode is also brought to you by Nug of Knowledge, smokable CBD products. Uh, Nug of Knowledge is not your everyday CBD supplier. First of all, they're selling smokables. Second of all, a portion of the profits go to help end the war on drugs, and we'll be talking tonight about how important that is. Uh, It also, some of the profits go towards a compassionate use program that donates medicinal hemp products to veterans and other people with disabilities who cannot afford uh, these natural remedies. Uh, Many who use this product say that it helps with joint pain and stress relief or even a much-needed pick-me-up. Be careful because that green one isn't legal in every state, Uh, but it is legal in many other states. Uh, Be sure to use the checkout code SPIKE for 10% off of the smokables. This episode is also brought to you, of course, by personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds. Uh, in If you are in the Tampa Bay area of Florida and you find yourself injured personally, be sure to contact Chris Reynolds at chrisreynoldslaw.com and he will get you money, probably. I, I can't guarantee he'll get you money, but he'll try. He's a lawyer. That's what he does. chrisreynoldslaw.com Uh, This episode is brought to you by, oh, the intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi, that's J-O-D-A-V-I, check him out on Facebook or FaceCloud, go uh, go to his SoundCloud uh, or check him out on his Bandcamp, go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com and uh, and check him out today. I'd like to thank LeBlu for the, oh, my water's empty, I'd like to thank LeBlu for the water that I already drank on this episode i'm gonna have to get water in a minute because i'm definitely gonna need water but i'd like to thank leblue because i'll probably be getting another bottle of water from leblue this water is made in america kosher and gluten-free just like me 
Shout out to Tehran Turks and Mominum as always. Folks, my guest tonight is an absolute inspiration. He was a victim of the war on drugs as a teenager and has turned his life around in a major way. I, I really don't even want to say more because I think he can tell his story far better than I can. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show, Mr. Jason Spires. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have been looking forward all week to talking with you. Thank you for having me on the show, Spike. I appreciate it. Well, I'm very excited to have you on. And folks, be sure to chime in with your questions and thoughts. And Jason and I will tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, Jason, usually when I have someone come on the show for the first time, who's a libertarian, I usually ask you how you became a libertarian. But that's not where your story starts. As I mentioned in your intro, you were a victim of the war on drugs. And, and that's really where the story starts here. How, before we get started, how old were you when you when you got arrested? I was 19 years old. Wow. And I got arrested. To... Yeah, two days from my 21st birthday, simulating circumstance. Wow. So can we talk, talk to us about what led up to you getting arrested? How, how did that happen? Oh, yeah. So essentially what happened was I was a, a poor, welfare-ridden kid growing up through school, uh, not making excuses. I'm just setting the scene. And, like, I got bullied a lot in school for not having new clothes and things like that. And so when I turned 16, I wanted to get a job and start working to make some money. And uh, I interviewed at Jack in the Box. And they were like, we need people for the lunch shifts. We don't really need anybody for night shifts so I actually ended up going on home study so I could actually work a job and make money so I started making money and so since I was working at jack-in-the-box I wasn't having a lot of the high school socialization that you'd normally have and so around my 17th birthday I wanted to throw a a big party my mom owned uh, property had 40 acres and I was going to throw a big party with a band in the back Oh, wait, no, that was my 18th birthday. I'm sorry. I wanted to throw a party on my 17th birthday, and I just wanted to have party favors. And my buddy knew where to get a half ounce of uh, low-grade cannabis for 35 bucks. And it sounded like a great way to get girls to want to come to the party. And so <laughs> I, I went and said, okay, let's do this. And we ended up uh, – I wanted to get a car because he wanted to go to a place called Rancho Tehama to get it. So I asked my mom, hey, can I use your car? And she said, what are you going to do? And I told her. My mom smoked pot and all kinds of stuff. So well, okay. she's like, all right. So she gives me the keys and I go to walk out. She's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm like, what? She's like, here's 10 bucks. Get me some. I'm out too. So I was like, all right. So we end up going on this wild goose chase. I ended up paying 40 bucks for something that was like less than a half ounce. But we get it. And so the next day I talked to some people. And I see one of the girls, I'm like, hey, I'm having a party night, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't even smoke pot at the time. So this is like the height of teenage stupidity oh, wow. where I went and bought something that I don't even use to try and get, you know, girls to come to the party. So, but I enjoyed the talk and the reason to uh, interact with people. Right, right, right. So as I'm, sm- as I'm smoking the girl out, uh, one of the guys is like, hey, man, hey, man, you should let me get $10 of this. I'm out. And I was like, no, I'm not trying to sell it. I'm, I'm just, you know, it's for the party. He's like, yeah. oh, come on, man. I'm like, no, man, I'm not trying. It's, it's for the party. And so right, when right, he right. walks away, the girl was like, hey, would you sell me $10 worth? And I have yet to figure it out. But for some magical reason, she was able to get me to say yes. And I sold her $10 worth. <laughs> so 
Then later on throughout the day, that happened again. Then my buddy who helped me get the stuff the night before came to me. He's like, hey, man, let me just get this small amount for this piece, for this right. price. And I'm like, all right, I still have some, some leftover for the party. Right. So right. when we get to the party that night, I still had, I don't know, I'm, I'm making up a number here, but like an eighth, you know, I mean, something left. Right. And, and I counted up the money I had and I had 35 bucks. So I was like, well, cool. This only actually cost me five bucks. But then I remembered the $10 that my mother gave me as I was going out the door. So I actually had made $5 with literally telling people, no, I do not want to sell this to you. No, I'm not trying to sell this to you. And I, I noticed two things. One, it was a way to make money. But another is I enjoyed like the social aspect of it. I was important. Right. I was the man. I was the guy with the pot. And I've always been the type that enjoys intention. I'm enjoying being on this podcast right now. I, I acknowledge that about my personal character. Right. So I, I started selling low levels amounts of cannabis, nothing that made a lot of money. I still kept my job at Jack in the Box. And then one day the, my buddy came through and wanted to get something like, dude, I'm at work. I can't, I can't do anything. He said, I'm going to come through the drive through I'm like, how would I ever know it's you? He's like, I'm going to order a jumbo jack, no meat. Whoever orders a jumbo jack, but no meat. I'm like, all right. So he did it. Okay, and I right, threw $10 right, right. In, a, in the bag or a 10 bag, a dime bag, $10 for the cannabis. Yep. Yep. I get yep. confused on the lingo of what people understand, depending on the audience I'm talking to. This so, audience knows what a dime bag is. So. I'm pretty sure they do too. <laughs> but, so I threw it in the bag and then it kind of became like a thing of its own. Like we were kids and we thought it was cool. Hey, I'm selling it through the drive-thru. Yeah. And so one day I'm sitting there in a drive-thru and I get the Jumbo Jack no meat. And so I go to do it and a guy pulls up that I know and I hand him the bag and they hand me the money. He hands it to the guy in the passenger seat who I'd never met before. The guy in the passenger seat looks in the bag, looks over at me and says, good deal. And then they pull off. And now I'm in the middle of running the drive-thru. So I didn't have time to really reflect on that. But I was like, what, what just happened? Yep. So then I go outside on my break and I'm starting to think about how like I created this rationalization that I wasn't really being a drug dealer out to make money as much as just a guy that was hooking up his friends and making money in the process and enjoying mm -hmm. the social attention of it all. Yep. yep. And then I just realized that I just sold $10 of a drug to someone I don't even know. Yep. And then at that point, it's almost ironic how it happened. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm sitting there in the parking lot and I'm like, am I okay with this? <laughs> you know, like my, can my rationalization of I'm not doing anything bad, hold up. Right. And I'm not right, joking. Right, right. At this point, a cop pulls up right on my feet gets out of his car, comes up to me and says, hey, Jason, got any weed on you? I said, no, nah, man, I'm out. And I realized because it was one of my buddies who was a cop who I sold weed to who wasn't trying to book me for it. He was legitimately inquiring if I had any weed he could buy. <laughs> and that's when I was like, I just literally told a cop with no hesitation, no, nah, I ain't got any weed on me. And if I had it, I would have sold it to him. And then that's when I was like, is what I'm doing really wrong or is it just illegal? And then right. that's when call it me wanting to still make money and still wanting the attention. But I was able to rationalize that I wasn't hurting anybody that I was doing something that was illegal 
and not necessarily immoral on its own. You can make right. the argument that if you violate a law, there's an immorality to that, but that's a separate that's a separate uh, facet of this thought. Okay? Right. There's not an actual so, victim to what you've done. Yeah. So what happened was is th- then next thing you know, I'm going I'm selling a lot of like low low amounts of cannabis. I'm making concert money. I'm making car money. I'm not making like buku bucks. So then I go out to Illinois because that's where my dad lives. And I found out the price of cannabis out there. And when I found out the price of cannabis out there, all I seen was dollar signs, dollar signs everywhere. Because my buddy bought an ounce of weed for like 100 or 120 bucks. And this was back when it had seeds and was brown and the THC was like 4%. Yes. And like I brought THC that was green. It was still compressed from Mexico. But like it was higher quality than what they were getting. And I said, dude, I can get you this for a hundred an ounce and I'd be making money hand over fist. And so it just spiraled from there. I, I, I take complete ownership that I voluntarily did the action. I knew it was illegal and did it anyways, but I didn't think I was hurting anybody. Right. And then what happened is you can flash forward to May of 2001. By this well, point, okay. do, do, like, do you I mind was if I, going- do you- do you mind if I stop you for a second? Because I, I just want to mm-hmm. talk about where we are up until this point, because this hits home yeah. really in a major way with me. You are 37, correct? I'm 30. Yeah, I'm 39 right now. You're 39. OK, so we're basically the same age. I'm going to be 39 this year. So the time you were getting high and selling weed, some would say I was in a similar situation. I certainly would never say that because South Carolina has no statute of limitations. But I will say that it, it has been argued that uh, by others that I was in a very similar situation to you. And you then end up in prison. And we're, we're going to get to that point. But this is like not an uncommon story for teenage kids that – they're getting high or you actually weren't getting high initially. I wasn't but, getting you know, high. I was going to correct you on that. Right, right, right. But so, many of us were getting high and ended up just selling to get back the money that we were, uh, you know, that or some were selling to, to get back the money that they spent so that they broke even. And before they knew it, they were actually making money and it sort of spiraled out of control uh, as mm-hmm. a result of that. This is not an uncommon thing. It happens or it happened all the time with with people. And uh, it's just incredible. So anyway, I, I don't but this is, you know, like this is not the Scarface story, right? You're not you're not a gangster that's out, you know, well, defending your turf. But go, go ahead. I'm going to let you keep going. The story touches there. So what okay. happened is and this will come full circle. Like there's a reason okay. for this is in May of 2001. I never let anybody know that I was selling uh, larger amounts in Illinois. Cause I was by this point, I was selling pounds and five pounds at a time. It, right. it just escalated so quickly. And I never let anybody I sell sold to know where I live because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to bring danger to my house. Right, but right, then right. May of 2001, I'm laying in bed and I get my door kicked in by six to eight people. They all had guns. I later found out it was two or three different gangs that coordinated and they ended up wow. bashing my head open and robbing me for 83 and a half pounds of pot. Now, the funny part about this is I was always like, how did they find my address? Like, how did they even know who I am? Because I'd never met any of these people before. And how did they even know it was there? Right. So two days later, they all get caught. 
with the cannabis that they robbed from me. So I'm watching the news and I'm looking at all the cannabis that was mine that got robbed. These guys got caught with it two days later. And so they go off to prison. Six weeks later, I get arrested for a box coming through UPS at 37 pounds of pot. Now, if you want to make the argument, Jason, you just got robbed. Two people got caught, went to prison. Why are you still doing it? Once again, I'm not saying I was making smart decisions. <laughs> I was, an, you know, I was a young, stupid kid. Right, but like, right. so I get caught with this 37 pounds. That they deli- it's a whole other story. They delivered it to a house that I wasn't at to a 14-year-old kid who said he doesn't want it and refused to sign for it and arrested me for it. So, but I was guilty. So that's all that matters. Right, right, so, right, right, right. So here's the deal. I get to prison. And do you remember my whole thing of I'm not hurting anybody? I'm not yeah. doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. I end up in the same prison with the people that robbed me. So I'm out on the weight yard one day and one of them comes up to me and uh, said, hey, you from Decatur, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I'm from Decatur. My name's Adam Benjamin. Oh, well, it's okay. He's in, in prison. It's all public knowledge now. So I'm like, uh, I'm like, yeah. So I knew exactly who he was. And he's right. like, ah, oh, so who did you know in Decatur? He keeps on pushing me, like, you know, trying to talk to me. And then finally, I was just like, look, dude, I know who you are. What are you trying to do? And that's when he started to get aggressive with me. And one of the, the gang members on the yard that liked me said, pulled him aside and said, wait a minute, that white boy ain't never caused anybody any problems. What's going on? Why are you messing with him? And, uh, the guy said, man, I robbed him and this and that and got, you know, they're like, wait a minute, you robbed him? He's like, yeah. He's like, and he's not trying to cause problems with you? He's like, no. Right. He's like, then you're not going to try and cause problems with him. That's, you know. So then they pulled, you know, I go up and the guy kind of squashes it. And I said, yeah, I, I ain't got any issues, man. That was, you didn't rob me. You robbed a drug dealer. I don't take it anything personal. And I right. have no desire to sit here and live in violence about something that's not even a part of my life anymore. I'm right, just dealing right, with right. the consequence. I'm no longer that person. The consequence so, of what happened, yeah. Yeah, I'm just dealing with the consequences of being in prison. So flash forward another year, me and this guy are cool. We're ended up working third shift in the dietary. We get along and we're talking. And one day it just came up. I just asked him like, man, how did you guys even find my house? And back then... I was a Slipknot fanatic. When I bought a house or rented a house, I shared a driveway with the neighbor. And uh, one of the things that I did, and that's why I didn't want people to know where I live, is I didn't want to bother the neighbor with traffic coming through near the house. Uh, I just had Slipknot stuff all over my house because I was a Slipknot fanatic. I kept everything away. And one day I went to a guy's house to do a sale. And I guess they, they seen my car. And I guess somebody down the street had a grandmother that lived on the same street that I was at. And they saw my car sitting in my driveway. And that's how they identified my house. So they came through with this guy. The guy points out my car and says, yep, that's his car. So therefore, that's his house. So then these six people that were all gangsters with guns decided to come up to my house, not knowing what I looked like, not knowing how I talked not knowing if it's even there. And all they knew was a white guy named Jason. And they said, does he have guns? And the guy's response is no, Jason's a lame. He doesn't have a gun. 
you could probably hit them and take whatever you want. So, so they go up the driveway, they're all getting prepared. And the guy that I'm in prison with, who's telling me this story says they're standing there getting ready to kick in the door. Right. And they're getting ready. And the guy looks over across the, across the driveway and he sees my Slipknot tapestry hanging in the door or the window of my house. He's like, wait a minute, look at his car. And they seen my Slipknot stickers on my car, seen the Slipknot tapestry in the window. And he was like, I think that's it. And then they crossed over the driveway, kicked in my door and robbed me. At this moment, everything that I thought about myself shattered and crumbled before me. Of course. The whole rumor, the whole lie that I gave myself, that I was not hurting anybody. And advocates out there, listen to me, the story comes around full circle. Shattered before me. Because I like to say I wasn't hurting anybody. But I brought a gang, six people with armed guns to my neighbor's door who did nothing wrong, solely in search of a white guy named Jason. When they kicked in my door, they split open my head. Had they not realized the Slipknot tapestry in my door, they would have kicked in my neighbor's door. And probably when he said that yeah. he, he's not me, they probably would not have believed him, and they would have probably split his head open. This story gets even worse because a couple weeks later, one of the people that robbed me robbed somebody else. And when they asked him where his weed was at and he would not tell them, he knocked the guy's daughter's eyeball out of her head. Wow. So they could have kicked in his door. My neighbor wouldn't have known what they're talking about and said, what weed? What weed? I'm not even Jason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't know what I look like, so they would not have known it. And I cannot say that they would not have hurt them. Or killed so them. So here's what I tell people. Even killed them. And this is why it comes full circle. It yeah. sounds like I'm hating on the legalization of cannabis, that it creates these problems. But the actual truth of the matter is, the only reason those people came to that door is because you en- enabled me to be inside of an illegal marketplace with people who don't have morals. And right. that if you put it into dispensaries and into a legalized marketplace, you, you will not have people coming to my door with guns who could have hurt people. Yeah. I have to own that is my fault that my actions brought those people into that neighborhood. But society has to own the fact that one of two things needs to happen. We need to either get rid of people using cannabis, which we have been trying forever and seem to be failing. It doesn't at, work, yeah. Or we need to realize that humans have reactions and we need to set up our marketplace to minimize the harm that comes from those actions. And so I try to make people understand this all the time. I did not smoke pot, but I'm telling you this. You can be anti-prohibition without being pro-use. You can say that I don't want you to smoke a joint. I don't want to come home and see my kid high and still say, I also don't want an illegal market where people are kicking in his door. Right. There There is a mass distinction that must be made and i feel that progress has been held up because they look at the use and they say there's problems with use and if we legalize it you know it's not fighting against someone using it and i'm saying no you can legalize it we have aa centers all over the place alcohol is considered a drug we give rehab for it we can address the substance issues for those who abuse it 
without making a criminal market be established and to create a black market that funds gangs and is going to help with terrorism. Yep. So that's why I always tell that story is because a lot of people look at me and they see me as this white guy that's very clean cut and able to explain himself. And I didn't grow up. I'm not a gangster. I didn't want to be a gangster. I had no violent intention in me, but I was able to follow this moral slippery slope of this lie of a belief that I gave myself that I'm not hurting anybody. And that lie resulted in six armed people at my neighbor's door. Right. Now, as a society, we cannot help teenagers making stupid decisions and not realizing the bigger picture. But we can realize we can prevent those teenagers from being able to create that situation to begin with. Right. So exactly. That's exactly. one of the points that I always make. Um, so now I'll go on to the rest of the story. <laughs> so I had that moment and it changed everything for me. And it made me realize that not only do I want to make a better impact in life, but I have to create a positive net contribution to make up for the harm that I created just to get back to a net zero. Because it doesn't matter if cannabis should have been legal. It doesn't matter if it is legal. It doesn't change that I created a net harm. So I asked myself, how am I going to do this? And the only thing that went through my head is I said, the more I study, the smarter I'll be, and the better I'll be able to answer that question. And so then that's when I started studying uh, chemistry on my own. I started studying economics on my own. I started studying physics on my own. I got a I wrote a college and asked them for an old textbook and I got a 1200 page molecular chemistry textbook with 1100 page workbook. And I spent this, this was, this, this was still in prison while I was in prison. Okay. Okay. And so, and so I studied every single page, every single problem. And I learned exactly everything that was going on for six hours a day for six to eight months straight. And the six hours counts me actually physically writing, taking notes not the time me thinking about it, trying to figure it out. Right, right. And, and as I was going through all this, I like to joke that uh, I committed one more crime in life because when I got my notes done, my notes stood higher than the textbook. So if you believe in intellectual property, I technically did copyright infringement on my notes because it was bigger than the textbook. <laughs> so, but, um, so, but I kept on educating myself because I knew I wanted to do something better. And now here's where libertarianism and my whole path came to be. Right. In 2007, I get a letter from Dan Lin, who is the executive director of the Illinois Normal, which is a national organization reform marijuana laws, because I was in communication with them to try and help uh, raise awareness to how we need to get rid of the black market. And he sent me a letter because he was a real good friend. He supported me, you know, emotionally through letters. He's like, yeah, I'm getting ready to watch the, watch the debate. And I'm reading the letter. I'm thinking in my head, he's a Democrat. Like the debate wasn't that. He's like, yeah, the Republican debate. I'm like, the Republican debate. And he's like, yeah, Ron Paul. And I'm like, what? And so the next Republican debate, I turned it on and I watched this old guy get up there behind the thing. And I'm like, and I listened to everything he said. And I'm just like, wow, how is this a Republican like yeah. he called out the wars. He called out the war on drugs. He called out, he called stuff about terrorism out. Like, so at that moment I found out that he was like libertarian philosophy. And then that's when I started learning about libertarianism and I was studying economics. And then I started learning about, you know, supply and demand and application yep. of resources. Mm -hmm. And 
one thing that had been troubling me over the years is that when I first got into the prison system, I found out that there's certain things you can do to improve your prison sentence to get out early. And that's if you uh, get a GED, increase your education, participate in drug rehabilitation, things like that. You can do things that would earn merit towards getting out sooner. So I go to my counselor and I find out what do I got to do to do this? And I usually tell the story because there was two guys beside me. One guy was a convicted sex offender. The other guy was a murderer. I sold cannabis, no guns, no violence, sold cannabis. I found out that out of the three people, I was the only one who could not qualify to get the good conduct credits against my sentence. Because in the state of Illinois, I was considered more heinous than a second degree murderer. Yeah. Because what happened was, is I was a class X offense. And in 1978, we changed our correction system to allow people to become better people instead of being a punishment system or a correction system. We wanted to correct you. But anybody who understands politics knows that there's compromises. And the compromises that they made was that there's some people who's done something so vile, so heinous, they've given up their right to be restored. And they created this class crime called Class X, which means you are X'd out of society. You'd sacrifice right. that right. And they put it in there with human disbodiment, with, you know, aggravated murder of a senior citizen. You know, all these grotesque crimes that I believe even the staunchest criminal justice advocate would be like, I agree why they got arrested. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Right. so, but then what happened was Nixon and Reagan and the war on drugs and politicians so this is, voting on so, bills so without understanding this, what they're doing. This, they this, enhance, po- this, this policy is federal that you're talking about, right? It's not Illinois. This it, was is a a st- it was a state policy. Oh, okay, okay. There, go, Tyson. okay. 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 So okay. Go ahead. In 1978. That, so what happened is, is, is you got this whole movement across the nation and, you know, the federal government likes to use money to control states to get them to do what they want. And uh, so in the state of Illinois, we upgraded a cannabis offense to a class X on this whole, I'm going to give them a longer sentence thing. Not realizing when they do that, you've now legally declared any person who sold cannabis in that range more heinous than a secondary murder. So I was ineligible to receive good conduct credits and things that could help rehabilitate me because I had sold over 11 pounds of, of low-grade cannabis. I'm not disagreeing with, with there being a consequence. I'm just saying... I don't think anybody believes that I should be legally more heinous and less rehabilitatable than a second-degree murder or a sex right. offender. Yep. Okay. So, or, so, so I was like, man, what can I do to fix this? And then I was listening to Ron Paul and I was learning about economics. So I started writing all the newspapers because one of the things Ron Paul did is he talked about how a lot of legislators vote on things they don't understand. And you need to get the voters to care before the legislators ever will. And so I wrote every single state rep. I wrote every single state senator. I wrote the governor's office. Then I started writing the newspapers because I said, okay, I'll try to get their voters on board. And so while I'm doing all this, uh, this was like a five-year thing. Okay. Uh, We finally started to get criminal justice reform in Illinois. Governor Rauner came into office talking about make the time fit the crime. He was a Republican. I like to think he was pretty libertarian-ish in his Republican ways. Um, 
And he was like, we're no longer going to give people these sentences that don't match. And we should be ashamed of ourselves and we should start restoring things. Right. So he comes into office. One of the first things he did in office was deny my clemency. And I was like, at that point, I remember when I first got my time and I got my 30 years in prison, people would ask me, like, I'd still smile. I'd still laugh. And they're like, what are you doing? I was like, I was in shock. I, I did not truly believe that society would allow my 30 year sentence to stand. I said that, that society will step up at some point and be like, yeah, no, that's crazy. We're going to undo that. That's not going to happen. And I really thought that, that would happen. But then here I was 11 years into my sentence with a guy who just took office on criminal justice reform saying that right. we're giving out these crazy sentences and they're not right. And we shouldn't do this to people. And then he wins election. A Republican won a statewide race in Illinois saying we need to fix the prison system. These sentences are crazy. And his right. first thing he did is deny my clemency, which so in my we, eyes was saying 30 years for cannabis. That's cool. We can ride with that. So let's talk about that for a second. Why did you get 30 years? Uh, because in Illinois, the statue is 12 to 60 years. So check this one out. Here's the difference between California and Illinois. My mother sent me that box of cannabis that I got arrested for. Uh, Let me show you the difference between the state laws, which I believe yeah. in states' rights, so there should be some yeah, differences. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. my mother's maximum sentence for the same cannabis, the same box of cannabis she sent me, was mm -hmm. four years. That was the absolute max. The box that she sent that I received, my minimum was 12 years. That was the absolute minimum. So what happened was, is when, when Governor Rauner denied my commutation, I had this epiphany where I realized society was really going to make me do that entire sentence. Right. By that time, I'd already served 11 years. I was like, I can handle the rest of the time, but it was devastating to accept that society was going to allow my sentence to stand. Because if the guy who wins office on criminal justice reform saying all that stuff can't even lower my sentence from serving 15 to serving 11. So I said, what am I going to do? And this is what bothers me. I think back to this kid I knew. He was black. He had a tattoo on his neck. He was a four corner hustler, which is a gang. He was 19. He'd realized that the gang was a scam and that he was being used and that the leaders were making money off of him. And he wanted to do something different. And he came to me, we were talking, and he said, how can I do something better with my life? And I looked at him, black kid, going to go back to the south side of Chicago, four corner hustler tattooed on his neck in big letters. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to tell him, dude, you got so much against you. There's not much you... You can try to make your life better, but yeah. you got a lot against you. And then that's when I realized I'm white. I'm clean cut. I'm very articulate. I'm not scary. And the thing that I went to prison for, nobody really thinks is all that bad. Right. And I said, I have the ability to be the megaphone to help make changes 
that that 19 year old kid who just wanted a better life would be less likely to achieve. So I felt it on my back. And so in 2016, I finally get to a work release center, which is where you're allowed to get out and you're allowed to go to work and uh, try to try to like reintegrate you into society. Well, I came into my counselor and I decided I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to try and get those policy reforms done so that the next person sitting in my shoes wouldn't be labeled heinous and unrehabilitated like I am. See, because people think that I'm worried just about the inmate. I'm not. Uh, Recidivism rates, at least in Illinois, was 89% if you did not have a GED. And what that meant is that out of 100 people who left prison, if they did not have a GED, 89 of them came back. If you did have a GED, it dropped to 47%. Wow. That's a 42% reduction. And I try to tell people, I'm not ever going to make the economic argument to you. Because if you make the economics, then all you're saying is when the economy gets good and we can afford it again, we can let this happen. So here's the argument I make. Don't look at it as 42 less people who came back to prison. They did something wrong. They might deserve to be in prison. But look at it as if you lower that recidivism rate, that's 42 other victims that never got created. That's 42 other emotional instances that didn't impact somebody because they got their their wallets snatched from them as they were walking down the street. Right. Don't right. think of it as you're helping the criminal. Think of it as you're reducing the impacts on society. And so one of the arguments I make is we should use every carrot we can to get people to get a GED. And you're going to tell me because they sold a certain amount of cannabis that you're not going to incentivize them to be able to be smart enough to fill out a McDonald's application. When I got out, I could have told you how molecular chemistry worked and what a mole was and all kinds of things with physics. This scared the heck out of me. A smartphone scared me to death. Try to apply for McDonald's now. And I'm going to tell you, if you think that the average person getting out of prison without a GED is going to have an easy time with that, you have a misconception of what we actually have going on in America. Yeah, because uh, so imagine if for for those that are watching this, uh, Jason did 15 years. Imagine what your life was 15 years ago. And now imagine that you are separated from all of society from that point until today. And now you've got to figure out with all the changes that have happened, not as an abstract idea like, oh, I lost 15 years. Like imagine not having, you didn't have a cell phone or if you did, it was one of these like brick looking phones or something like that. And then you come back out and this thing is more powerful than any, any laptop that, or, or computer that you had ever possibly been exposed to before you went in. And that's before you get into the people that spent 20 or 30 years in there, but look at 15 years, what, what, what that's like coming out and everything is now on this. You don't even have one of these and God forbid, and, and we're, we can get into this next, but you know, uh, you know, the, the debt issues, credit issues, everything that's happened. Oh. Lots of people in prison deal with a stolen identity while they're in jail and they yep. have no effective way to even know what's happening, much less fight it. Let's talk about your debts for a moment because you're sitting so, yeah, on the kind what, of, that's what I was getting to. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about your debt center. One of the first yeah. things your counselors do is they want you to start paying off your fines. Here's where I discovered I got $268,000 in debt 
for selling cannabis as a teenager. So I'm sorry, they said it in court. I should have remembered. But when they're giving you a sentence that's longer than you've been alive, sometimes your ears don't hear everything that's said after that. Right. So so I get to the Workley Center and I realize I have $268,000 in fines because I sold cannabis. And so I, I'm like, uh. So I'm like, what am I going to do with this? So then, and that's a going, going issue, but I, I go to my counselor and I'm like, I want to be an engineer. And, or I said, I got two goals. He's like, okay, let's hear your two goals. I'm like, my first goal is to do whatever it takes to make you happy. He's like, I like your first goal. You're, you're, you're on, you're not that, you're, you're pretty bright. You're not that dumb. I like your first goal. Let's hear your second. I was like, I want to be an engineer. And he's like, what does that have to do with me? I'm like, I want to go to college. And he's like, oh, this is a work release center. You can't go to college. You got to work. I said, it says in your book, I can go to college. I don't want to push the issue though. He's like, he, I said, my first goal is to make you happy. So I won't push the issue, but I want to go to college. He said, get a job, work full time, bring home two checks, and then we'll talk about it. So I go out and I get two jobs working at Kenny's West Side in, in downtown Peoria. And I'm working 70 hours a week. Within six weeks, I became the manager of one of the auxiliary businesses that was losing money at the time. Uh, I brought home six weeks of checks at 70 hours a week. I went back to my counselor and said, Okay, you said bring home two checks of 40 hours a week. I've brought home six checks with 70 hours a week. I would like to go to school now. <laughs> He's like, you're working 70 hours a week. There's no way you can handle school. He didn't know that I'd already studied physics, chemistry, calculus, everything where I've been locked up. Yeah. I spent all that time preparing myself to be able to be more successful. So, uh, so I'm like, look, I told you what my first rule was. You told me what to do. I followed through. Trust me on my second rule. He was like, all right, you can take one class. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. One class. I said, some of them are two units. Some are five. If I can't take right. the five because it doesn't work with my work schedule, I can't take two twos. And he's like, just go sign up for college and don't do nothing stupid. I go out to the college, full-time engineering courses, full-time <laughs> labs, everything. So I sign up and long story short, 17 months in the work lease center. I was working 60 to 70 hours a week. I was doing full-time labs in engineering. I held a 4.0. I helped turn the auxiliary business around from losing money and made it profitable to the point that it was sold to a business partner on the condition that I stayed on as operations manager for six months. Oh, wow. Um, and I started transferring, applying to transfer to other universities such as Stanford, Harvard, University of Illinois. Uh, I wanted to make this big impact because I knew I was equipped and ready to try and make a big impact. And I wanted a place that would help me do that. So here's what happens. Illinois gave me $268,000 in fines. While I was in the work release center, Illinois comes to me and says, hey, we're trying to do recruiting for corrections. Would you mind coming and speaking to criminal justice classes about what the job might be like from an inmate perspective? And so now I'm going and speaking on behalf of the Work Release Center for the Illinois Department of Corrections to criminal justice classes about how they can work within the system to try and make it better. Through that, I ended up meeting the Director of Communications for the Illinois Department of Corrections. 
and I was able to discuss my goals and the things that I would like to see changes happen in Illinois for their criminal policy. And she was like, huh, what are those? And I started talking. Now, I can't say that everything I said is what made them magically go, bam, hey, we're going to do that. But I said, if you're willing to hear me out, I'm willing to cooperate and help you. So they said, I think we're on the, I think we have a meeting of the minds here. And I'm happy to say that today, every single policy reform that I argued for from my prison cell and was published in papers arguing for has been implemented. And it was implemented underneath Governor Rauner. Wow. And so one of the things that I remember, and J.B. Pritzker is doing a great job continuing it and trying to make it better. So one of the things that I argue about is the very guy that denied my clemency, that made me stay in prison because, you know, 15 years was the right sentence, according to him, and that $268,000 in fines was cool, according to him, right. did follow through and did make some policy changes that's made it so that buddies like Shane Crutchfield of mine, a, a friend of mine who got 40 years for a couple ounces of cocaine, is now no longer a heinous offender and is getting uh, good conduct credits and might get out of prison a year or two early for doing rehabilitative practices. Um, but, but so what happens is I'm applying to all these colleges and I'm doing all this stuff with the Illinois Department of Corrections. At that time, Cash Jackson starts running for governor in Illinois, he's libertarian. Mm -hmm. He comes to me and he's like, dude, I need you. Be my, be my director of field operations. For the ballot access initiative, uh, I collected 1,600 signatures, volunteer. Um, me and Justin Tucker tied for first place on signature collection that year. And, uh, and so well, after I helped get Cash Jackson on the ballot, he was like, dude, you got to help me. You understand policy reforms. And if you help me, I will push the same policy reforms you want done. So going around with Cash Jackson, I ended up running into state representatives, Jason Barrickman. I ended up running into other elected officials. At this time, I get into Stanford. I also get in to the University of Illinois. And here's where a disconnect comes. Yep. I had a 4.0 GPA. I was the first ever incarcerated student to make it into Phi Theta Kappa. The University of Illinois accepted me with the asterisk that I have to come on academic probation. I was like, what? Why do I got to come on academic probation? I called the guy up. I'm asking him, I'm like, what's going on? Like, I've never cheated on a test. He's like, oh, oh, we've seen that you got a felony. And anytime you got a felony, there's one of three things we can do. I'm like, okay. He's like, we can accept you outright. We can deny you or we can accept you with academic probation. And I'm like, can you explain to me when you would have accepted somebody without academic probation? He's like, oh, yeah. Let's say you got a DUI two, three years ago, but you went to court, you got a year of probation, and then you get out, but you ain't done nothing wrong. So it was two years ago. We're just going to accept you. You made a mistake. It's behind you. We let you go. And I'm like, have you seen my you file? Weed 15 and he pulls my file. And because I sold cannabis 17 years before, they deemed I was a risk to cheat on a test. So I had to go into the University of Illinois on academic probation because I sold cannabis as a teenager 17 years before. When Stanford heard about this, the dean personally called me up and he said, Jason, come to Stanford. 
where we see you for the man that you are and not the mistake that you've left behind. And it almost put me in tears. And what, what hurts my heart is everywhere along the way, if there was a government entity involved, even when there was good people in those government entities, yeah, they had bad policies and bad decisions. And I try to tell people, I try to remember that the people are not necessarily representative of the government that they have over them. But the problems I have is that the more advocacy I do and the more I've been involved in the political arena, I realize outside of libertarians, there's a lot of people who just check the box for the letter they know. And they never even look at it. And they just assume that their politicians know what they're doing. When the Democrats nominated Joe Biden arguing about criminal justice reform, Yep. With the very guy who pushed for the Brady Bill. I was like, what? And then the 19, Republicans the are 19. like, I'm with Donald Trump because he gets spending underway. And we've had the largest deficit in the history of the nation. Like, it's like they just vote for the letter that they know. So then yep. I get to Stanford and I'm in my Power 2 class and they want me to do a presentation and the presentation has to be on like a policy that's messed up. And they say, you can do it in regards to drugs. So I did it on legalization and I had to give a thesis on what we should be doing. And, I, and the name of my paper was, I beg your pardon. And what it is I said is that if we legalize cannabis, we should pardon all cannabis convictions. Yeah. Now here's where it spiraled into the whole next project that I'm currently on. I had to fly back to Illinois. I had to help lobby on behalf of the cannabis bill, not in a measure of people like Dan Lynn or Illinois Normal, but I did assist. And some of the very representatives that opposed the bill, like Jason Berrigan, who I met at WCIA News, shook my hand and said, dude, your story is amazing. I've, I've read some of your stuff. Like, I'm on board. Anything I can never do to help you, let me know. He went on the news opposing the cannabis legalization because he said it might give drug dealers a conviction off of their record if they were a non-violent cannabis. I, I called his office. I said, do you remember the discussion that we had in WCIA News? And I started talking, and I started to explain why he shouldn't oppose like the expungement procedure inside of the bill. And once again, I can't say he changed his vote on me, but I can say that I give him props. Senator Jason Berrickman became a co-sponsor of the legalization bill, and it passed with an expungement procedure that has allowed hundreds of thousands of people in Illinois to qualify for expungements of their convictions. Because of so, your work. Not because of me. I cannot say that. What I can say is I called, and I think he might have searched his own conscience. But sometimes not, you just need... I know you're not saying it. I'm saying it. Go, go ahead. I'm saying, I'm saying it, but yeah. I'm saying the 19-year-old kid with four-corner hustler who was black in prison in my same spot probably couldn't have called his office and made the same impact. But I can tell you that 19-year-old kid now would be eligible for expungement and it will help him move past the gang fallacies that he had in his head. Yep. So uh, here's what happens. So we get that pass. And then I take uh, – computer science class called 182, which is ethics, public policy, and technology. And right now, this is happening, even in the federal level, we have criminal justice reforms where we're going to start implementing artificial intelligence algorithms to make predictive models on who should be released, who should have cash-free bail versus using cash bail, and 
I'm telling you, I see the onslaught that's coming because the criminal justice reform people, the social justice warriors have great intentions, but have no understanding of how the technology works. Yeah. And then a lot of the people in the tech field have great intentions, but have no understanding of how the actual correction systems operate. Let me give you a real good example of the disconnect here. When I was going for community college courses while I was in the work lease center, I had to pay for my tuition at the community college, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't get the Pell Grant if you're a convicted drug offender if you got the Pell Grant during it. So they've changed that now. So that's a positive. Good. But now there was this thing called the American Opportunity Tax Credit, which allowed you to deduct the expenses of your college education against your taxes. I'm literally in the financial aid office of the college with a convicted rapist. As I'm standing there, he qualified for the American Opportunity Tax Credit, and I did not. And the reason I did not is because underneath the American Opportunity Tax Credit, which is a federal thing, if you have a drug conviction, you cannot qualify. However, if I take a gun out and shoot you, I can qualify. Yeah, I was going to... So if I rape your wife, I can qualify. If I I sold you a bag of weed, I cannot. Don't qualify. And this is the disconnect that people have. So I'm looking at that kind of disconnect, like that simple thing. To me, that's dead obvious. Like, you know, if you sold cannabis, you should be able to write your college expenses off of your thing the same as if you killed somebody. That's, that's, That's just my belief. So... And now I'm in this class and they're talking about how they're going to do these cash-free bail algorithms and how are they going to make it okay. And I'm starting to look at how they're doing the bucketing. Computer science, unlike politics, libertarians have understood that politics is not binary. It's not left and right. It's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. It's not yes or no. It's not for gay marriage against gay marriage there's also why is the government telling you who can who you can marry to begin with exactly there's this other answer but when you get to computer science all a computer knows is a zero and a one so what's happening is they got these buckets and you can go through it and i'll give you a good example libertarians are a real pro-gun hopefully we can understand the difference between a gun charge though so the algorithm is going to assess that this person is risky does this person pose a risk? Should we let him out on cash-free bail? And one of the things that the algorithm is going to look at is, do you have a prior gun charge? And it's going to assess that. Now, here's the difference. The algorithm does not know the difference of if I was a pimp sex tra- or sex trafficking minors in New York City who also sold a lot of heroin, who had a stolen sawed-off shotgun that I filed down the serial numbers, and when you kicked in my door to try and get me for the child sex trafficking, they just happen to not be there, but you're going to arrest me for the gun. So I got a gun charge. Now, let's say this other guy is in Illinois and he went out hunting and he had a hunting rifle that his dad left him and he didn't register it correctly. And he gets pulled over by the game warden. Why he's out hunting. He now has a gun charge. Do you really think the computer will not be able to see the difference between that? Of course. Now, my CS professors are like, good point. But there's judges, and they can override those algorithms. They're They're right, because they're tech people. Judges can. Tech people are removed from how the actual political system works. Mm -hmm. Just like 
community social people are removed from how the tech works. So I told my professor, I was like, do you realize that in most of these states, judges are elected officials? And at any time they get the chance to not have to make a decision and just say, I just went with what the algorithm said. The machine going told to me to do it. it. Exactly. And if you think, and if you think that someone's going to come before you and that judge is going to be like, I'm going to risk my career on this to let this guy out for a week. Yep. You're out of your mind because Willie Horton showed how scared people get when it comes to elections. So Bingo. when I talk to people and I tell them my story, they go, oh my gosh, that's outrageous. You got 30 years for cannabis? What? You know what yep. an algorithm's going to say? Yep. Yep. That's it. Because there's no yep. human rationalization there. And here's the scary part. Like something like 49 or 50 states are already implementing this procedure. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying... I see the unintended consequences of the legislation, just like in the Constitution when they said, you know what, let's not be a punishment system, let's be a correction system in Illinois, and then created the class X offense. But then that expanded, and then next thing you know, you got nonviolent cannabis offenders being more heinous than a murderer. That's yep. what's going to happen with the AI algorithms that are going on right now. And so I created a website, and it's called MakeCannabisNotMatter.com. And the reason I created it is I'm trying to raise awareness of it. And I came up with the name because you had Trump saying, make America great again. Then you had Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I was like, I want something catchy that people ma- you know, will remember. So like Black Lives Matter, make America great again. Let's make cannabis not matter. And my whole premise of that is I want to remove cannabis convictions from any algorithm that is assessing the risk of an individual on bail. And my argument is, is if you legalize cannabis inside of your state, you have ruled that that actual action on its own does not merit you being a dangerous person. Now you can argue, oh, but you did something in violation of the law. It was illegal when you did it. Therefore, it should matter. And I'm like, there's a logic to that. But let's think that through. So you're saying a computer should look and say, if someone did something that was illegal at the time, even if it's legal now, it should still be held against them. He's like, yeah. Okay, so anybody who's in an interracial marriage in the 1980s or 90s, yep. they're a risk to society. What? Interracial marriage was illegal. Well, wait a minute. Well, what if they, uh, what if they were homosexual and you know they loved their partner and yep. so they participated in sodomy? Yep. That's a crime. It's not... I mean, if you want to follow the logic of you did something wrong at the time. It was illegal. It was here's illegal. how the computer is yeah. going to do it. Yeah. Anybody who did sodomy, you're a risk to society. And that anybody and that's who not was just in an inter, interracial marriage, you're a risk to society. And in that's most not, states, and that's anybody not just, who got a blowjob, even from their own wife, is a risk to society. And not and not only is that a crime, that's a sex crime. That's a sex crime. So, let me talk. Let me talk real quick about about the Willie Horton thing and why. Because there may be some people in the comments that are saying, you know, but why would that be that a judge wouldn't override it? So in uh, in 1986 or 87, I believe, uh, Willie uh, uh, Michael Dukakis was the governor of Massachusetts, and he created a. A work release program that al- work for furlough program that allowed people that were in prison to go and work and then go back to prison. And it was largely going well, but there was one guy named Willie Horton. He went out on his work release and ended up holding up a, uh, a, a nursery or something like that 
and uh, to try to get free, ended up killing a bunch of people. That haunted Michael Dukakis' career for the rest of his life. He ended up, probably the reason that he lost to George H.W. Uh, Bush in the presidential election was because of Willie Horton. And so a judge who is being presented with an opportunity to override a computer program saying, no, put this person away, don't give them bail. That's going to be in the back of their head. I don't want this to be my Willie Horton. I And I don't even have to make a tough decision here. All I have to do is say, hey, the machine said this person was a risk. Better safe than sorry. I let the machine do what it does. That's why this is a major issue. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, another another reason that this is a major issue, and I want all the tough questions. I can't see the comments. I, I, I don't run from... I like trial by fire because if I don't have a good position, a, a, a criticism could strengthen my view or make me realize I have a gap. Right. So here's the problem is if you go before bail algorithms, a lot of times you don't even go into court anymore. You're sitting in front of a video camera. And right. as many attorneys can tell you, especially if you're on a public defender, they don't actually take the time to look at your file. You're like, you're just something coming down the conveyor belt. You're just another case. And then put someone like me, right, on that who gets arrested for cannabis, right? And I come before you and you're assessing whether I should get cashless bail or not. Right. Well, the judge looks at it as there is no upside to me overriding this algorithm because if I let him out and he does everything right, that doesn't make the news. However, right. if I keep him in jail, it never comes against me. But if I let him out and he commits a crime, that's all over it's the all newspaper. Yep, there is no upside. And you're right. A judge could override it. But They're do you want to trust elected officials to make the right decision? And if so, I find it weird that you'd be listening to a libertarian podcast. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're definitely, you know, I, even if you trust them to make the right decision, like you said, in this case, with as little as they know about it, there's only one scenario that results in 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 anything good or bad. The only good that happens is if they err on the side of caution and just let you go to jail, because if they put their neck out and let you out and you do, like you said, they do nothing wrong. That's every bit is not any skin off their back or any help for them as if they just left you in jail. But if you do something bad, it's all downside. There's no to upside their credit, to help. The designers of the algorithms are trying to be fair where they do look at someone who would not have been a risk to society not getting released as a negative. And they are weighting okay. that inside the algorithm. But the difference is, is just like when I sit down with politicians and I talk to them and I realize how removed they are from what a class X sentence is. Right. Everybody's removed from it. That's one of the reasons why I'm applying for grad school for artificial intelligence. Because, like, I feel like you can call it a universal consciousness. You can call it God. You can call it whatever you want. I feel like I was put in the intersection of these two sets where I understand what it's like to be within the criminal justice system without necessarily mm -hmm. being criminally minded. But at the same time, I also was fortunate enough to get to Stanford where I'm learning how the tech works. And I'm in this weird position where I can see what's coming. And there's very, very few people who have that same uh, intersection of prior experience. I, I just want to comment before we go any further on the level of grace and positivity that you have. You talk about how you're in a you know unique position 
almost as though it's like this, uh, and you didn't say it was a blessing, but like, you know, oh, what, what a great thing that I'm in this position as a result of you being in prison for 15 years. You were in an incredibly terrible situation with, uh, you know, going to jail, and yet you look at a black man that was in a similar situation and go, wow, look at how much better I have it than this person because of their lot in life. I have to think that the perspective that you have been able to have in life is what has allowed you to take what for many other people would have crushed them and made them never do anything in life and end up being that statistic of recidivism. And instead, now you're a Stanford scholar who is trying to, you know, enact both criminal justice reform and technology reform at the same time. L- let me ask you this. Y- y- I know you're trying to to get a, a pardon, which will also... Mm completely expunge your debts as a result of that has there been any progress on that where, where does that stand here's what here's what happens uh i have no problem talking about it i usually don't bring it up on my own because the thing is is the things that i'm arguing for and the changes that need to happen i never want to diminish the the ability to make that argument by making it seem like i'm arguing for myself right. what happened was is i had a reporter get a hold of me one day and I'd filed for a commutation because when I was in Peoria, I had a sheriff call me up or uh, I had the, the president of the Illinois Police Chiefs Union call me up and be like, hey, Jason, have you ever thought about putting in for a pardon? I was like, no. He's like, well, if you ever want to, let me know. I'd, I'd like to help you. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. Oh, by the way, do you want to meet uh, Representative Busto? She's coming down. If you just come down here, I'll introduce you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so then... I get, I, I'm talking to people and he's like, if you ever put in for a pardon, I'll back you. And uh, so then I was talking to somebody at a press conference one time and his name is Greg Bishop. And he asked me if I put in for a pardon. I told him I put in for a clemency underneath Rauner. And if Rauner denied a clemency, they're definitely not going to hear a pardon. Right? right. So he, I think he called Rauner's office and he was like, Hey, uh, do you guys have any comment on this clemency you denied? Because he's now going to Stanford and he's $268,000 in debt. And I wasn't there. I wasn't on the call. But the response I heard was, calls back. They call him back and like he calls back like an hour. And they're like, Mr. Spires is free at any time to refile for a clemency. And we would happily consider it. Right? So he gets a hold of me. And I'm like, what? And he's like, so the first thing that went through my head is, I said, I'm going to Stanford. I'll probably be okay. Right. Obviously, I don't want to pay $268,000 in fines. But like, as life, right. I'll be okay. I was like, but I know how much work it takes to file this petition. I said, if I go to do it, will you cover the story? He says, yes. I said, will you cover the entire process? Will you sh- help me show how many barriers there are for people who do not know how to file paperwork to right. get this done? Because if you realize how hard it is, maybe they're sliding an expungement procedure into the cannabis legalization bill, making it so people could automatically qualify for such things. Which so happened, yeah. I docu- So I file a pardon on this premise. When I go to file the pardon, it requires that you get fingerprinted. I go down to the local sheriff's office to get fingerprinted. Later that day, Sheriff Brian Asbell calls me up. I'm like, hello? He's like, yeah, this is Sheriff Asbell. Is this Jason Spire? I'm like, yeah he's like are you filing for a pardon i'm like yeah he's like would you care if i support you on it i mean i can write you a letter i'm like go for it and then i established a relationship with the sheriff in peoria because i was helping do you know jail reform there 
and the Libertarian Party helped me with that. That's a whole other story. Um, but the bottom line is, is now I am seeking a pardon. It's been pending underneath J.B. Pritzker for over two years now. He passed the cannabis legalization bill. He said that we need to help right the communities that have, have suffered from uh, the drug laws and the drug war. While I believe that my statistics probably don't fit the community that has been most affected, I do believe that my story definitely fits me being very affected. And <laughs> I, I, I would like to think that J.B. Pritzker will grant me a pardon and get rid of that 200. Do more than that. If J.B. Pritzker came to me and said, here's the deal. I have two things sitting on my desk. I have one pen. I want you to tell me which one to sign. I have your pardon sitting on my desk. It gets rid of your felony. It gets rid of your $268,000 of fines. Or I have the bill on my desk that gets rid of six-figure fines for people who had a nonviolent drug offense. You can think I'm lying if you want. I would tell him to sign that bill. Because I know people right now who are saddled with six-figure fines who are not able to move on in life because of it. They did something, and we're telling them as a society, move on, get past it, become a better person, and contribute to society. Oh, by the way, remember this forever. Quarter and then million dollars in debt. I yeah. went, I cannot name, I have to, I went to try and get an internship at a certain defense contractor. It has to do with artificial intelligence. I cannot go into too much detail. So I told them about my cannabis conviction. Because I was open, because I needed to get a security clearance. They're like, that doesn't matter. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa no, no, no. I, I went to prison for cannabis. They're like, yeah, no, that doesn't matter. If it's just cannabis, that conviction won't matter even if you went to prison. We can get you the clearance. Uh, unofficially, I was kind of told why I didn't get the clearance or why they didn't think I would be able to get the clearance. Therefore, I did not get the position or the internship. My $268,000 in fines makes me a risk to be blackmailed by a foreign government. Yeah, yep. because of so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I started thinking about that on a larger scale. There might be things that, like, yeah, everybody who gets caught and gets these fines, they aren't going to end up at Stanford studying artificial intelligence, trying to make sure that we don't have collateral damage because you sent your missile to the wrong house. They're not going to be doing that kind of stuff. But Right. They are going to want to get a house and get a wife and move on and reintegrate in society and take pride in being a part of a law-abiding community. But then what happens is they go to apply for a home loan and they have $100,000 debt that cannot be discharged. Check this one out. This makes no sense. Had I taken a baseball bat down to the police garage and just started breaking windows with it, I would have gotten a restitution fine. That could be discharged in bankruptcy. But my fine for cannabis is a punitive measure to keep me a lesson. So that cannot be discharged. So check that one out. So I'm hoping that J.B. Pritzker, with everything he's doing with his criminal justice reform, will look at my case and not just say, I deserve a pardon and I deserve those fines taken off my record. I hope he looks at everyone like me that has demonstrated they've moved forward in life and says anybody who is taking the steps to put their past behind them, we're going to push them into their future. We're going to take those barriers off of them. I'm not saying that you got to make it so that they don't held responsible for it. I'm all over the internet. Everybody knows that I got a cannabis conviction. I'm saying make it so they can get home loans. 
make it so that they can qualify for different federal programs like the American Opportunity Tax Credit. Remove right. the conviction. You don't have to remove the arrest. It can still be, if they commit another crime later on in life, law enforcement can still use it to dictate if it's possible that they could be a person of interest, all kinds of things like that. Nothing that jeopardizes the public safety, but just make it so that that person can continue to move forward in their life if they've turned away from the very things that we've asked them to no longer do. You yeah, know, and absolutely. even better than that, I hope when, I, when I'm doing my master's program, I've offered any state, any correction system, any federal system, if you want my assistance to help implement these algorithms and help identify it, I will do it. And I won't do it to try and make money. I will do it because there was a 19-year-old kid with a tattoo on his neck who was crying because he no longer wanted to be part of the gang. And I need to make sure people can make these distinctions and understand that just because someone has a tattoo on their neck does not mean yep. that they cannot be rehabilitated. Exactly. And there's this, there's this, yeah. I'm usually no, more well-spoken than this, but I get No, no, you're, so you're, much. listen, you're a hundred percent correct on this. And, and it, this, and now I'm a proponent of simply ending the war on drugs. Okay. It, it you get, like you said, what, like we started with, all we are doing is creating a black market that empowers criminal gangs who then pay off government officials, which leads to more corruption in government. Uh, and you have, you know, addicts not being able to get help because they don't want to risk, uh, you know, prosecution for admitting that they have an addiction to something that's illegal. You have people that can't help them because they don't want to get in trouble as an accessory. You have people like you get caught up in it and end up, you know, a, a lot of people in your situation over a decade in prison, quarter of a million dollars in debt. It ruins them for the rest of their life you are an incredible person you and, are and you are an exception is, to that this is very important that i add because i've had a bunch of people say this to me they came to me and said jason that's great but you are an anomaly we don't actually do that to people on a big scale and i'm like yes yeah, we do, do. Yeah. yes we do and you're removed from it i can name people right now who also paul miller got 28 years for cannabis as a non-violent offender in illinois Shane Crutchfield got a 40-year sentence for a couple ounces of cocaine. Uh, Angelo, I think his name's Angelo Diaz, got 55 years in federal prison because he sold cannabis with a gun on himself. Rand Paul has argued to help that guy out. Like, it's there's just no, this so happens. much stuff. And and I met I met I met uh, Russ, the guy who started up Silk Road. I met his mother, and oh, it Russ broke Albrecht? my heart. Russ Albrecht. Yeah. 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 It broke my heart. I was on a show with her and I heard about her son. And I'm going to tell you this. This is what it ties into tech. Anything that's violent with that guy was never proven. They didn't even pursue no. the charges. They just, He they didn't, didn't beat him. The state didn't even say, we know it and we just couldn't prove it. The state dropped it. The state said, yeah, we, we're not even pursuing this. So here's the thing. Tech is the future and we're using tech to in, implement these AI algorithms and what you're doing is you're going to scare off the very people who have the ability to make technological changes to help make this world safer and better by getting rid of legal marketplaces. Be so afraid to do it because they're going to look at Russ and say he's doing a life sentence. Do we really want to stifle innovation that could make society a better place because they can point to that guy and go, I don't want to be him? Exactly. Exactly. And, and the answer I was is hoping so bad Trump would commute his sentence. I'm even I, okay you know, with the conviction. I, I, His mom might be upset that I'd say that, but he should have at least got a commutation. 
I agree. I agree 100%. I've been a very strong proponent about, I believe he needs a full pardon. At the very least, he needs to be out. There's He's he's done many years. There's no reason for it. Uh, he had a website where things happened that were illegal. He did not do the illegal things. If you applied that logically, that would mean that the owners of Facebook and eBay and Craigslist and, and Twitter and every other site where illegal things happened I will give you a better be one than that. We all agree that, or not all agree, most people agree that Trump Use Twitter in a way that agitated things that happened on January 6th in the right. in the nation's capital. So uh, should Twitter go to prison because they allowed a guy on their platform who made a dangerous statement? I exactly. think Twitter has even said that they removed the guy, right? Yep. But here's the yep. thing. It doesn't matter if they removed him. It happened. It happened. And, and, and the bottom line is they don't. I would like Twitter to try and make the argument to me that no, 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 no. In all of his previous tweets, we knew Trump was not not unstable at all. We knew he was a genius. Everything would be fine. We had no indication to think that there'd be a worry. That something right? would be a problem. Yep. And I'm not mad at Twitter. Twitter did the, you know, I'm not mad at, at Twitter by letting him have it. What I'm saying is, is you're scaring off a lot of people that could use innovation to make this world a bunch better place and make less victims get created because you're focusing on I'm against people doing a drug instead of realizing anti-prohibition. I'm against people having a site instead of realizing technological innovation. You know, like, yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got, I got one more question for you. You have been a fantastic guest. The, the, the commenters are just, honestly, they haven't even had questions. They're just saying how fantastic you are. One question they have had, and it's one I wanted to ask you as well. As you know, we now have a new president. He, was the architect of the war on drugs, but he is our new president. Uh, prior to the Senate election in Georgia, uh, and after the uh, presidential election, but prior to the Senate election in Georgia, uh, congressional Democrats introduced the Moore Act, um, which did not uh, it passed in the in the House and died in the Senate. There is a possibility that this will now that this act will will pass there's also a possibility they'll never introduce it because it was a cynical play to win in georgia but that's a whole other subject do you think that it will pass and if so do you know much about it and if it will positively affect any of the things that you're trying to push for i'm overwhelmed with remote online classes at stanford right now but i'm vaguely familiar with what you're talking about but the statement i would like to make as joe biden is he helped pass the brady bill in the 80s and a lot of people like to point that out but don't. And here's why. Because the guy went on TV and he said that he's sorry for it. And if you firmly believe that I should be given the opportunity to be judged for my actions today as a 39-year-old, then you need to say, okay, it's possible over the last 25 years, Biden had a change of heart. Then nail him to the cross when he does something wrong. I'm not saying don't criticize him. I'm saying if the guy starts saying the right thing, give him credit. One of the things that I, I talked to a girl I know about is she used to not buy a certain brand of cookies because they used palm oil and she was against it. So then they came out with this other brand of their cookies where they didn't use palm oil. And, and yeah. she said, I'm not buying those because they make other cookies that make palm oil. And I said, wait a minute. They were doing a practice you didn't like. In regards to the, you not liking it, they created a brand new product and said, we're going to try and do this. So they're now doing what you want them to do, and you're not going to incentivize and support that. If you want to incentivize and support good behaviors continuing, sometimes you look at what they're doing today 
and then criticize them for them not living up to what they should be doing versus Today. something that they've already said, yeah. yeah, you're right, I was wrong. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, we should absolutely be pushing for them to do things today. And if they don't do it, like you said, hold their feet to the fire on it. I agree with you 100%. Jason, uh, uh, Jason you have been a fantastic guest. I'm so happy that to, to have had you on. Before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to say whatever it is you feel like you didn't have a chance to say. Promote anything you want to. You can talk some more about uh, Make Cannabis Not Matter. Um, whatever else you want to talk about, uh, you are free to do it. Jason Spires, the floor is yours. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I have a page called Three Zero Years for Cannabis. You can also send me a message on Facebook Messenger if you want to get a hold of me. If I was to say anything, it's when you listen to my story, forget that I'm white, forget that I'm clean cut, and forget that I speak well, and forget that I was able to explain the situation. And then remember, when the person standing before you who does not have all those things might have the same heart and the same intentions that I do, and just not the same skills to be able to explain it. So if you want to help me out, just give a seedling of faith to the next person who says that they want a second chance. And then, if they mess up, nail them to the cross. But give them that seedling of faith. Absolutely. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. The website is makecannabisnotmatter.com. Jason, thanks so much. Stick around. Uh, I'm going to talk with you during the outro. Folks, Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I think it was fantastic, and it just drives home how much we need to reform the criminal justice system and and really just end the war on drugs. But uh, be sure to tune in next week uh, on Tuesday for uh, uh, the Muddy Waters of Freedom, uh, where Matt Wright and I will be parsing through the very first week of Joe Biden being president. Uh, And then tune in again right back here uh, Wednesday night, same spike place, same spike time, For my fellow Americans, my guest will be Chris Roofer, who is a libertarian businessman who has come up with an absolutely revolutionary, innovative system uh, for for uh, basically for running uh, uh, his how his employees work. It's a managerless system. There are no managers. It's just directly from the employees making decisions for themselves. I I can't even adequately explain it. Tune in next week. You're going to love it. It's it is. Uh, uh, as a businessman, I find it beyond fascinating, uh, and, uh, and, and, and I, I think it's going to be a great episode. But, folks, thanks again for tuning in. We will see you uh, next Tuesday. Oh, and next Monday, uh, tune in for uh, the, uh, the Culture of Winning. I will be interviewing – I don't remember. Hold on. I can tell you in one second. Let me pull up the calendar. I do this every week. I forget who my guest is. Uh, Joe Hartman. I will be. He is an elected official, uh, uh, libertarian, and we will be talking with him next week. Uh, but folks, thanks again so much for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys. <laughs>
my skin, my friend. In reality, you are my kin. Though I view the world through another's iris. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together. Become hybrid, at the least slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye and a time with the blind lead the blind. Who am I to deny when cry when a loved one dies? I recognize that body outside with the holes in the body that was alive. Now they find with chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at night. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these years I close my eyes. Open up the only fine. I'm in line. There's a point that's murder happening all the time. 